Hey everyone, this intro is a little bit different. I still want you to be aware of the fact that we talk about the movies on this show as if you, the listener, are very familiar with them, so we do end up spoiling a lot of things. But also, this is the finale episode of season one, and I just want to thank everyone for listening to these nine episodes. I've enjoyed doing them, and I really hope you've enjoyed listening to them. If you have enjoyed them, please consider rating us and leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. That would be a really big help. And then finally, I thought it should be said that Max and I recorded this episode before Tom Sizemore passed away over the weekend. We have nothing but good things to say about him on the show, but in case you were wondering why we didn't mention his passing or acknowledge it in any way, that's the reason. All right, that's it for me. I hope you enjoyed the season finale. Let's get on with the show. Welcome to the worst part of my favorite movie, the podcast that dares to suggest that just because we love something, that doesn't mean it's perfect. Thank you for listening. My name is Jonathan Foster. I'm your host. My co-host, Trip Von Weeks, unfortunately can't be with us here today. He bought his son a pet. It sounds like it's kind of an, an exotic pet. Very high maintenance. Uh, it can only eat at certain times. It sounds like a whole thing. Trip said he woke up this morning and it had uh, multiplied somehow. So I'm not sure what that's all about. Quite frankly, it sounds made up. Uh, but Trip is a good friend. Uh, I will take him at his word, and with any luck, he'll be with us on the next episode. But joining me on the show today is one of my favorite stand-up comedians. He's also a writer and producer whose credits include the Netflix shows Medical Police, Big Mouth, and the spinoff Human Resources. And he just finished up working on season two of the Peacock comedy series Killing It, starring Craig Robinson and Claudia O'Doherty. Along with Leah Beckman, he co-created and co-wrote a very funny and sprawling 10-episode scripted podcast called Past My Bedtime, which was released at the end of 2022 on Audible. And he's the envy of me and all my friends for having once been a guest diner on Top Chef. And I'm thrilled to be speaking with him today. Please welcome to the show, Max Silvestri. Thanks for being here, Max. Thank you so much for having me, Jonathan. Great intro. I feel gassed up. (laughs) Good to go. (laughs) So we're talking about Heat today, your favorite Michael Mann movie. Uh, But before we get into that, I did want to talk a little bit about Past My Bedtime. Uh, I've heard it. Uh, It's a very funny and deranged show, and I mean that as a compliment. Um, I was trying to think of a way to describe it, and the best I could come up with, um, it doesn't quite do it justice, was to say it's like 30 Rock or Larry Sanders Show meets Serial, that Sarah Koenig podcast. Uh, But again, that doesn't really begin to capture the energy of the show. The tagline is an oral history of the fastest failure in late night history. I was curious, was this an idea that you and Leah had been thinking about for a while in any way? Were there kernels of the show already somewhat formed in your minds or did the opportunity come your way and, and then you began to come up with ideas? Well, first, I want to say that I the 30 Rock or Larry Sanders meets uh, Serial um, is not something we've ever thought or said, but I think is a lovely sum up of it. So um, that's fantastic work. We got approached by a company that works with Audible asking if we had any ideas for audio. And I wasn't as familiar with scripted podcasts at the time. I'd heard some and I knew they were kind of like big productions these days with like big actors. And, you know, but in my head, I still had the like the stigma of them sounding like old radio plays where people have to really, you know, step out. Why are you picking up that cup of coffee? Clip, clop, clip, clop, you know, which is its own art form and can be very fun. But I didn't have any ideas, nor did Leah that quite fit into that. So we started thinking on like, what, what's an idea we have that really would um, excel in the audio medium? You know what? Like, I think a lot of the ideas that were 
maybe being produced just at the moment at that level were sort of like, oh, this could have been a TV pilot. It wasn't. So let's, you know, like get a cast together and make an audio version. We wanted to make something that you could kind of only do an audio. And um, we love documentaries. We love, you know, true crime podcasts. We also really loved like oral histories like Live from New York, the Saturday Night Live book, and, you know, even like weirder, um, the like small genre of like magazine piece you read now that's like the oral history of the two months that Jean-Claude Van Damme was the predator before he got fired. And it's one <laughs> right. of those things where you're like, is this real? And I'm reading 5,000 words on it. And I didn't know that, but I'm like fascinated. And I'm like, it's, you know, all these characters telling the story of a disaster. And really my my wife, Leah, my now wife, um, you know, she really was like into this idea of, you know, being inside a disaster. Um, so we we both read the book about the making of Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark, which is was a musical on Broadway that had all the like, if your listeners don't know it, it's like was this musical that had millions and millions and millions of dollars behind it. And like Bono and The Edge did the music and Julie Taymor, who directed The Lion King, the like uh, uh, the Broadway version, like the biggest Broadway director possible came together to do this like big budget Broadway show. And it just failed so intensely. And I knew that kind of from the outside, like had read all the stuff about like another guy fell and she, like it can't get out of its own way. But there's a book that the original like writer of the musical wrote. Um, and it was just this really heartbreaking thing where it was like kind of the biggest opportunity he could ever imagine. And then sort of for reasons out of his control, it both got bigger and then, you know, slammed into the iceberg. And he was just kind of this slow motion witness to a a train wreck over the course of many years as his like dreams were destroyed. So yeah, sort of that all gelled into like, how could we, you know, tell a big funny story that like lives in a lot of spaces we're familiar with media, comedy, showbiz, you know, and, and give it the like mock importance of something like a slow burn or whatever, where you just take this little pop culture turning point that people maybe have forgotten and, and spin it into, you know, six hours or whatever the podcast is. Yeah, it really kind of snuck up on me in a way that I wasn't expecting, uh, but that I really liked. It, it, it's 10 episodes. It's five hours of pure storytelling. There's a deep cast of characters, and it's a really complicated story. But you and Leah really are able to tie it all together and land it in a surprisingly touching place, I thought. Lyndon Parham has a great line reading at the end that, that really moved me and kind of reverberated back over the previous nine episodes. I, I'm So I'm curious, like, what was the writing process like? How long did it take you to, to find it? First of all, Lennon is unbelievable. I mean, she she has like such a heavy lift as the the mother of this um, young boy. The story, the ostensible story of the podcast is that a a journalist now, 20 years later, who uh, is telling the story of this late night TV show in 2003 that was on the air for like six minutes and then got canceled quite dramatically. And it was hosted by uh, a 10 year old boy. And so now, 20 years later, it's both kind of retelling what happened, why it was erased from cultural our cultural memory, and him trying to, like, close the loop on the story. His dreams of being a journalist were sort of ruined. And, and Lennon plays the mother of the boy. And she has a lot of heavy lifting to do, like, emotionally, where you have to kind of, like, buy her as being, like, slightly naive or a bit of a dim bulb to walk into this situation and, like, slightly self-interested or distracted such that like things got out of control with her child, but also you have to like root for her and just think she was a good mom. And um, she's just an incredible actress and like incredible improviser. And like, we were the luckiest to have her. Um, 
I mean, the writing process was like, it was tricky. We started from a place, just the two of us, of of having these big ideas of like looking back on getting to kind of jam in all the jokes about like, you know, media and writer's rooms and showbiz and predatory practices with child actors and how kind of short-sighted and, and all the mergers and everything that happens where you suddenly don't know whose idea anything was and who's the boss and stuff gets thrown out. And then we knew we needed a character to carry us through. And, and this idea of like a petty journalist who won't let something go was kind of like, you know, that was the thing that got us through. And that's like, we knew that's the character people would care about. So, you know, I think initially when we planned it, more of it probably would have taken place in the past in the sense of like, let's tell more stories about the making of a late night show. But like the more we were writing, we were kind of like, we really want to get to the, the, the fallout. We really want to get to like this guy right now who's like on a mission and is kind of wanting to fix things with his ex-wife and is kind of wanting to like get a podcast that fixes his career. And that just kept, it's like, the, the urgency of that story kind of kept pulling the narrative more towards that. We were like, oh, he could do a thing where he's he really is just trying to like win his wife back or all these things that I think if you listen to like a true crime podcast or a documentary or any anything like that, you you maybe form a relationship with the, the journalist narrator. But if they're doing their job right, they're not they're telling someone else's story and they're trying to remain distant. They often include too much of themselves, especially in podcasts. But you know, journalistically, it's like, this is not your story. This is the story of, you know, Adnan or whoever. And I think that's, that works when you're reading a news story, you know, when you, but, but this, it's like, who's our main character and and we need to him to have a goal. So I think it kind of like following his obsession was easier than just trying to lay out the facts of our crazy made up story um, that, you know, the more we wrote, the more we were like, this can barely compete with the real world. I mean, we were trying to like, heighten everything and make it crazier. And while we were writing it, like Jimmy Fallon produced some like late night show on Peacock for children, starring children, like it, it, and and it was like the same production company. It's like our show. We were just like, this is so wild that we were like, what's the craziest thing that a network could do? Put a 10 year old on late night. And then it sort of happened for a minute. Um, But it's funny talking about the the podcast now in, in compliment with heat, because they are both these um, sprawling, you know, intersecting narratives of all these different characters in the way that like, you know, these chance encounters and overlapping desires. Um, I'm not saying our it's we're the heat of comedy podcasts, but I think the idea of 200 characters and maybe not all of them getting to be served is something dear to my heart, both in my writing and uh, consuming process. Now that I, I think of um, the worst part of my favorite movie um, and it is my favorite movie. Sure. So from one sprawling entertainment to another, let's, let's get into heat. Um, it came out in December 95. And if my math is correct, you would have been 12, uh, back then. Correct. Um, so it's a three hour R rated dramatic thriller. Was it on your radar at all when it came out? What kinds of movies were you into and excited about when you were a 12 year old? I don't think I saw it theatrically. I'm like sure that I didn't at the time. I like remember the narrative of Pacino and De Niro finally teamed up. And I'd like, I think by that age, I'd seen The Godfather and Godfather 2. So, and but also a lot of their, you know, like was was familiar with their like early 90s movies and like just their status. But I think I like wasn't allowed to see it. And also, yeah, like the other thing I remember from it coming out was there was kind of a rumor that they were never on set together. It was like one of those apocryphal pre-internet, pre-IMDb things where they're like, oh, if you look at the the diner scene, it's like split in half and they're never actually on camera. And, you know, 
But then I got really into both film and like DVD collecting like a couple years later, like still like maybe 14, 15, like DVD players had just come out. And I was like very into I just was like buying and I had like a job and also this weird Internet scam I was doing, which is a long story where I basically was like getting like unlimited Amazon coupons just by like clicking on these little banner ads while I was like in the library at school. So I just like kept having like $20 of Amazon credits a week. And I'm sure the math was like child labor, but in my mind it was free money because it was just like gift cards, but I probably spent, you know, five hours a week or whatever to get these gift cards. But I was just like, because of that and because I couldn't like, wasn't real money, I was like buying like graphic novels and books and DVDs because that's like what Amazon had at the time. So I was sort of ambitious in my movie collecting. I was like reading a lot about like new DVDs and movies and kind of like getting this movie education through a forum called dvdtalk.com, which was like still around and is like a deals site. So it'd be like, this is coming out and there's this new release. And I, because that bought a lot of movies I hadn't seen, a lot of movies that I like kind of was like told were cool or you know, there was like a buzz around them, but I went through probably just a couple years after this came out, like a big Michael Mann phase. And like this and The Insider were like two of my top ones that I suddenly was like, I'm obsessed with these movies. And who is this guy? I mean, the look and feel and the like, you know, the clinical precision of like these characters and their jobs and how good they are at their jobs and all of that just like really spoke to me. So it just it just sort of like started living in my psyche like back then in like high school. Yeah, I'm curious what expectations you brought to it, and and maybe you don't even remember. Um, and 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 here's what I mean: I was 14 when it came out. I was I was very aware of it. I stayed on top of new releases. I would read every word of those uh, Entertainment Weekly summer movie previews and fall movie previews. And it was a really big deal, like you said, that Pacino and De Niro were in a movie together. There was a real electricity in the air about that aspect of it. But I didn't actually see it until uh, four years later in 1999. I saw it during my first year of film school, and I saw it. In pretty ideal circumstances, it was on a giant screen in a 300-seat theater on 35-millimeter film. It looked and sounded great. But at the time, I just felt like I was checking another title off my list of unseen movies. It, it, it's been kind of surprising to me in recent years to, to see just how embraced Heat has become and to kind of track its status as a classic. Because when I saw it, it felt to me as if its reputation... Um, and place within the larger cultural landscape was maybe a, a settled matter. When I saw it, as far as I could tell, this movie was not considered like a classic in 1999, certainly not the way it is now. Uh, people did like it. Some people loved it. Mike Clark of USA Today and Kenneth Turan of the Los Angeles Times both included it on their best of 95 list. Uh, but it was not my impression that there was such widespread passion surrounding it. So, for instance, Roger Ebert gave Heat three and a half stars out of four. Uh, but it didn't make his top 10 list. It, it didn't even make his first round of 10 honorable mentions. Uh, so that to me was kind of where Heat stood in, in most critics' minds anyway. Gener generally thought to be a good movie, but maybe a little overlong. Mm -hmm. It hadn't really blown up the box office in America. It did well, all told, internationally. Um, but it, it cost $60 million to make and, and grossed about $67 million. And that was, you know, not a not a huge hit. It was enough to where Entertainment Weekly listed it as a disappointment in relation to cost when they did their kind of box office winners and losers. Um, so I would say its grip on the culture was not huge at the time. And then in terms of like awards, there were there were no Oscar nominations, but it was also absent from like all the awards that led up to the Oscars. No, no major critics groups 
had singled it out in any way. Um, and the crime movies of 95 that were maybe more front of people's minds were like Seven and The Usual Suspects. Um, and I think this is one way the internet has really made an impact on film discourse because I definitely feel like Heat is much more loved now than it was then. Uh, so much so that I think if if somebody saw your list of the 20 best films in 95 and Heat was not on it, they would say you're crazy yeah. if you think there are 20 yes. better movies than Heat from that year. Um, so what were your impressions of it before you sat down to watch it? Did you have any preconceived notions? Was there a glow around it in your mind in any way? I don't think there was a glow. And I mean, I saw it maybe, I guess, before you. And again, when I was like sort of taking in movies in a little bit of like a bubble in the sense that I like I was an early adopter of the Internet and like was on these like forums and consuming sort of like an out there type of chatter of like a certain type of, I guess, film nerd or something like that. But I wasn't in that community in my high school. I didn't have like a gang of like movie dork friends where like, this is how we talked or how we conversed. It was sort of like a movie that I saw on my own and was like, this is, you know, such a well executed crime pick. Um, and I liked how sprawling it was, but it almost was like, you couldn't even get your much like LA. You couldn't quite wrap your hands around all of it. Cause there's so many threads and, you know, like I loved the set pieces, you know, like I think from the jump, the like the opening cash truck robbery and then obviously the 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 bank shootout downtown like, oh, that's just I'm just like enjoying this with no sort of like this is like the best version of these you could do. But I also loved seven and usual suspects and being like whenever like 13 or 14 as I'm watching those and taking them and they were like more they were flashier and of the moment, you know, like usual suspects was like a huge movie for me when it came out and in those years after and, and the trickery of the the storytelling and the reveal and this kind of like, I, I think the movie holds up, but it is sort of like of the moment in a very particular way and seven even more so like I, I love Fincher so much, but also, you know, all the like, you know, music video tricks in the filmmaking in that movie and the kind of like scratchy techniques and the credits and the kind of like, can you even believe someone could be this twisted and like uh, Walker screenplay, like all this stuff felt like I'm living on the edge watching these two movies. You know, these are like my parents didn't have something like usual suspects with like, oh, my God, the whole time you didn't even know what you're watching. And it's a lie and the twist. And my parents didn't have like seven, like no one's ever put. So, you know, as a teen, I think I was like drawn to the the edge lordiness or the like newness of both. And Heat is a better, bigger version of movies that I kind of watched younger that like my dad or parents would have on. There is a way of like Michael Mann is thinking and kind of almost a more like late 70s, 80s style of filmmaking. So like I really enjoyed it. But the young part of me was like seven is the coolest. And, you know, like I can't wait for Fight Club. And that's that was like me then. I think as I've gotten older, I like don't go back to seven much. I haven't gone back to Fight Club in a long time. But like the I feel like there's something that's aged better about Heat and it's only gotten better with time and there's less movies like Heat that kind of can exist both as this sort of like pulpy crime saga while also being pretty ambitious in its like, you know, philosophy. I think Michael Mann is like very intelligent guy and has like very kind of like, you know, he he thinks in very literary terms about his characters, like whether it always makes it on the screen, you know, you could argue, but I do think that there's like a... I'm taking myself completely seriously and the characters are taking themselves completely seriously. And there's n none of this is winking and none of this is like homage for the sake of reference. It's just kind of like he believes like 
you know, Neil Macaulay has this code and just like every choice he makes is defined by that. And, you know, like Vincent is a man with no limits. And this is how, you know, like all these things he believes so sincerely, which I think the 90s was a time for, I don't know, questioning that or disrupting that or having a little bit of skepticism of this sort of like blue collar sincerity that runs through, I think, a lot of Michael Mann's work. And like, I think both that's why it ages better, but also we're like in a time where we're like a little exhausted by, you know, punky little, I don't know, FU film like choices like they're 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 fun. But the idea that this is just like he wasn't rebelling against anything. He just had this sort of like grand vision. I think it's like why some of these like epics that were a little like maybe the eyes eyes were rolled at it at the time of like, geez, a three hour like this, all these serious men and there's no jokes and they treat women like this. And what is this? And let's see something new from new voices. I, I think it's aged in certain ways. Most parts of it has the time has I think people are just realize more what they're missing uh, like that, that like you don't have an opportunity to make. I mean, what was 60 million then would probably be like 180 million movie, million dollar movie now. That's just kind of this like adult epic with no quips. And uh, I think also the style of storytelling, like unlike most movies that are sort of forced into being a miniseries in, as a remake now, Heat is something that would like do great to be one, you know, like it would, it, it like it, it jumped around to all these characters and kind of really took seriously so many stories and so many interlocking narratives that it like barely could be contained in the runtime of the movie, but also, you know, would be an amazing, that that's the, that's like the predominant style of like serious adult storytelling. Now was like, you know, eight hour narratives. And that's almost like what this was itching to be. So I, I feel like I watched it just as kind of like, this looks really cool and these are big actors and I like this movie. I kind of at the time preferred The Insider. The Insider I rewatched more at the time because I just was like interested in media and interested in like business stuff and the corruption and, you know, seeing inside 60 Minutes, like the thing I grew up with. I was like, oh, this is and loving Russell Crowe. And like, you know, um, I can then kept coming back to to heat and it's it's funny the way it's also become a bit of a it's written in such a baroque style and has like this dialogue that at times feels like mammoth or something like that of just like this isn't quite how people talk this is a little crazy which maybe made it stick out or seem self-serious at the time but i think now people like love the artistry of it and the ways in which like al pacino quotes are you know a meme and De Niro quotes from it are like kind of this, I don't, I don't know. It's like, it's, it's really interesting to see the, like the, the comedy and the playfulness that has been rediscovered in it. Cause it is like a movie that takes crazy swings and it is a movie that lets like Pacino create his own, you know, cocaine fueled backstory to this character who, you know, ultimately is just a hero. I mean, he's like a good guy. That's just like, works too hard and, you know, isn't what his new wife needs or whatever, but is still ultimately like, I care about my, you know, like it could have been a simpler thing, but instead he's, he's sort of this cokey scumbag. It's, it's, it's fascinating. Yeah. You said, uh, recently on Twitter, you, you had just read heat Two, the novel that man wrote as a sequel. Yes. Uh, you said it feels like a six hour long Michael Mann movie, which is how long I'd like his movies to be. Um, clearly you're a big fan. Are there any, that give heat a run for its money. Is it still the insider? Have you caught up with other stuff that you, that kind of is on par with heat in your mind? I mean, I, I actually hadn't seen thief until maybe like two or three years ago. And I'd always heard it was amazing and had so much of the DNA of what he'd later do. in like 
Manhunter and even in Heat. And I mean, I loved it. I, I loved like, you know, a big, amazing James Caan performance and, you know, the space. You know, it's like there's so much plot in Heat, but it also really allows space for the actors to act. And I think I think maybe coming from a TV background where you so often, you know, are kind of stuck doing scenes that have to get you quickly to the next scene. And there's sort of not a lot of space to like, let's whether how much time you have to shoot or how much time there is on the page. You you just don't really get to like hand the ball to the actors that much for that long because of like sort of the demands of, I guess, like modern TV or at least comedy storytelling. And so like, you know, James Caan getting to do this, you know, pretty wild, specific, long monologue in the diner that so lived in and doesn't feel like it's trying to hit some like storytelling rule book of like, this is kind of how you make a likable. It's just like, feels like you're reading someone's like, you know, diary entry, you shouldn't be reading like the lived inness of the characters, I think is like what, what man's great skill is. And like where, you know, he, he's famously like takes from, from interviews from like old detectives and, you know, criminals he knew from the Chicago area or this or that. But like, there's the, the, the specificity that he like has faith in, in a movie like Thief, which was there so early, this idea of like, I'm going to trust that the audience has the patience to like watch a pretty faithful recreation of what it is to melt the lock of a safe and like how sweaty it gets and how long it takes. And it's like really a physical job. Like I, you know, I, I, it's something I love about all his movies of where he really is just like, I'm going to, they're largely obsessed with men who are like very good at their jobs. (laughs) And he really like brings you into the world of, um, you know, the jargon, the nomenclature, the kind of the codes of the job. And, you know, sure, there's like stuff you can apply from your own life, but you're also like, you know, you're in minute five of heat. You're like, well, of course, like the second that they'd killed one guard, they might as well kill them all because they know they're already going up on a murder beef. And so like at this point, no witnesses, you like you accept the reality that he creates of like, these are the rules of this subculture. You have nothing, you know, nothing about, um, I wish more movies and 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 filmmaking and TV in general would do that, would kind of like set it out and ask you, the viewer, to come meet them there halfway rather than the like, you know, let's have a character that's like new to bank robberies and, you know, needs it explained how it works and like a funny visual, like whatever. Like I, I it's it's exhausting and it's like nice to just like kind of have to lean into a world rather than just being like, come at me, you know, like hold my hand through it. I think he's, I think thief, like it was all there from the beginning and is funny and weird. And is has his incredible eye for casting where everybody looks kind of nuts. And you're like, none of even, even all the famous people that are in heat and all the people that now you see and everything, it's like, everybody's got such a look and such a face and nobody looks like they would be on a TV show. And everybody just kind of like has this like lived in mug and like, you know, Tom Sizemore and Ted Levine and all these people that are just like, you came out of the Chicago theater scene and like lived a dark life in your twenties. You were not a, you know, conservatory kid or whatever that was on a CW show (laughs) 21 and like only really knows how to like not move your head too much or whatever. Like they all just like bring such an energy and, and, and his, his eye for casting is just like so wild and good. Yeah. Steven Soderbergh once said that, uh, it's exciting to watch people who are good at something on screen. You just said the same thing. Soderbergh references the movie day of the jackal. 
uh, and says, there's there's no reason that movie should work the way it does, and it's because even though Edward Fox is a mercenary assassin, he's so good that you find yourself rooting for him. It's wrong. He kills people, but he's just so proficient, and we have a real attraction as an audience to that kind of proficiency. Um, and I think Michael Mann clearly agrees with that notion. Um, he doesn't make movies about the everyman. He, he does not seem interested at all in stories like that. He makes movies about Muhammad Ali and about the Muhammad Ali's of bank robbery, you know. Um, and he's even likened Vincent Hanna, the Al Pacino character, to Michael Jordan and Serena Williams, people who operate inside an intense and elevated existence. Um, in that same tweet about Heat 2, you referred to the characters of that book as proficient shark men. Um, so is, is that part of the appeal for you when it comes to Michael Mann's movies? Just, just watching these proficient shark men, uh, rob banks, do their jobs, do them well. Absolutely. I like love, I, I mean, I, I, I really like the movie day, the jackal. I love the book on which it's based, which is like even more so detailed in the minute by minute logistics of like, how does this assassin, you know, move from place to place and outrun the police and change identities. And it's like so in the like the weeds and nitty gritty of tradecraft where it is not, you know, it's it's got an emotional story. But ultimately, it's about like, shoot, how do I dispose of my clothes without this landlady, you know, knowing but she's going to maybe know so I can buy myself a day. It's all in these kind of like tiny choices of like action that or not how I live my life. And I don't know how I would, how I would do under those, you know, put in that kind of boiler room. And I think there is a bit of like uh wish fulfillment to be like, not that I want to be a bank robber, but like, what if I just like got to just do the only, the one thing I was obsessed with and like everything else kind of got out of the way. And I somehow just had created a life, you know, 48 or whatever, where I'm just like, it's all I know how to do baby or whatever. I, I, I find that very satisfying because it's just like those people, operate at a level that we don't operate. I mean, Michael Jordan and Serena Williams are like good examples. It's like their competency is like that they're special or whatever, but it's also like that they do it again and again and that they eliminate the things that get in the way of letting them practice, letting them focus, you know, the obsession with winning or success is, is central to their, to their being, you know, they're, they're sharks. They have to keep trying and achieving. And I, I, it's also just like, that's like the most, satisfying type of storytelling in a certain way. It's like, uh, look, the reason Top Gun Maverick is like such a like perfectly executed movie is because the problem of the movie is not that like maybe Maverick isn't a good enough pilot. The problem of the movie is that Maverick is like too concerned with the safety of his, you know, adopted son or whatever to maybe let him be his, you know, wingman or to like trust him on the mission. It's all issues of like, emotional stuff getting in the way of like, if Rooster was not there, probably Maverick could just do the mission. <laughs> you know, like it, the movie would have, he's like, I'm the guy and I could have done it. And I, that I have only been caring about this has, has cost me other things. But like the movie's not about like, do I have what it takes to, you know, nail this run in two minutes? He does, he does from the jump and every scene is just like, you're the best at this, but life gets in the way. So it's like this kind of like, it's very fun to watch movies where they're just like, if I had nothing in my way, I would, I'm the best. And and really heat comes down to like, who's better at getting stuff out of the way, you know? And like Hannah steps aside to help Natalie Portman. But other than that, he still leaves the hospital, you know, like he's almost like more of a shark man than, than Neil in some ways at the end. And, and that's, I think just very pure storytelling. It's not of like, 
I don't know, the kind of like bumbling of like, I can't do this. I'm an imposter is is interesting and fun and funny. But like for drama, you just want people like racing with full stats towards <laughs> their goal or whatever. You see me doing thrill seeker liquor store holdups with a born to lose tattoo on my chest? No, I do not. Right. I am never going back. Then don't take down scores. I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. Trying to stop guys like me. Uh, okay, before we go any further, I do feel like I should put all my cards on the table here, uh, just to be fair. Uh, I must confess that I'm not a huge fan of Heat. <gasps> There's a lot I do like about it, uh, and I'll definitely praise that stuff as it, as it comes up. <laughs> um, but I thought this might be an interesting discussion to talk about a movie that you love and that, that most people, in fact, love but that I'm kind of ambivalent about. So I just want to see how much daylight exists between the way I feel about it and the way you feel about it. And I'm going to try to talk about it without being a jerk and without making everyone mad at me. Although I can already hear my friend, uh, Chris Tapley telling (laughs) me that I'm out of my mind. Uh, So let's just see how this goes. Um, I'll offer up some of my feelings about it and feel free to push back. Uh, I just kind of want to hear your thoughts. Sure. So I really like Thief. And I really like Manhunter. Uh, those two and The Insider are probably my favorite Michael Mann movies. And as you said, um, there's a lot of DNA in those movies that shows up in Heat. I feel like Thief and Manhunter in particular feature the prototypical Michael Mann characters that ultimately form the two halves of Heat. So you have James Caan in Thief. He's the analog of De Niro. Uh, you have William Peterson in Manhunter. He's the analog of uh, Pacino. Uh, and their domestic struggles in both of those movies really anticipate the domestic struggles of De Niro and Pacino in Heat with yeah. Amy Brenneman and Di- Diane Venora. Um, but the way Mann deals with the relationships in those two earlier movies um, are so much more affecting to me than the Brenneman and Venora stuff in Heat. Some of it, I think, is just a matter of balance and focus. The amount of time that Mann chooses to devote to the women in the earlier movies is significantly less, and it's certainly less foregrounded than in Heat. But I think the less is more approach is stronger for me, given the lean and mean nature of those two movies. And I also can't say enough good things about the performances of Tuesday Weld in Thief and Kim Greist in Manhunter. They're both great. And I think Greist in particular takes what's honestly kind of a um, thankless role and gives it such depth of feeling. For me, the the Venora and Brenneman scenes in Heat feel um, obligatory, whereas the Tuesday Weld and Kim Grice scenes in the earlier movies feel essential. And you would think it would be the opposite, just given you know the plot and the, and the amount of screen time they have. Clearly, Michael Mann wanted to devote you know more time and more attention and expand those roles in Heat. But in my estimation, um, by expanding them, he kind of stretched them thin. Um, I, I don't think they're strong enough to support the amount of time and attention he actually gives to them. Because for me, the most important relationship in Heat is the one between De Niro and Pacino. And that's the one I I respond to, the way it teases and builds to their kind of three major interactions at the coffee shop, at the heist, and during the climax. And that's when the movie's really working for me. That's when it's really casting its spell. But then there's like these, um, I guess, concentric circles of additional characters and then their relationships. And the bench is deep in Heat. uh, You know, there's a lot of characters, a lot of subplots. And I find that the further we stray from De Niro and Pacino and kind of building up to that central heist, the more the spell of the movie kind of dissipates almost exponentially for me. Um, like I, I think the relationships between De Niro and like Tom Sizemore and Val Kilmer resonate more with me than any single moment with Amy Brenneman. Um, and I find the scene when De Niro gives them 
gives his crew a chance to walk away from this last score, and they all agree to say to stay. To me, that's a that's a very moving moment, especially the way Sizemore plays it. Yeah. Um, and I always forget how much more movie there is to go after the big high sequence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've seen the yeah. movie a number of times. I return to it every so often. So I think that does say something about it. But I feel like man burdens himself um, with so many loose ends to tie up with these characters and their romantic entanglements. And I get it on a conceptual level, of course, uh, but I just don't think those subplots are ever going to cast a spell on me. So let me just kind of check in with you. Is your blood boiling after hearing me say any of that? No, no, uh, I, it's I, you know, I never thought about Thief and Manhunter as being the kind of like two sides of you know, or the, the DNA of these two characters. I think that's so interesting. And of course, you're right. I, I will say that, like, I, I mean, I also find like the weak spots of that movie related to how it deals with the female characters. I, I agree that, like, what he bit off and not just having two leads in the relationships that brought, you know, took up a lot of screen time in these earlier movies, but like their crews being so relevant, you know? And like, I think there's like amazing stuff with Ashley Judd is like Charlene and like her relationship with Val Kilmer. And you obviously like get the texture of like, Oh, Tom Sizemore's got money put away. He's got a good thing with his wife. And you know, like, um, Trejo, like, you know, that his his family is so important to him. And you kind of see like he 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 not only is biting off the four characters, he's biting off so much and kind of showing not just how Macaulay and Hannah are similar in how they, you know, are, are barely holding on to a relationship inside their crews, but how the crews ha- like it's so much. And I almost think that, like, I, I sort of agree in that I think, like, had he like bitten off or written less, not that they shouldn't have been a part of it. But like, had it felt more in the film that this was like, this film doesn't have time for this, you, you'd you be distracted in the right word. And I, you know, wanted a film where there's no relationships in it. But like, I, I was actually talking about this last night with my my wife. There's something like Amy Brenneman uh, doesn't quite get enough to play, but she still plays it hard. And there's like, she's incredible in the movie. And actually, that is what makes it kind of so upsetting to watch. And it is the sort of one thing that goes off the rails for me because like on the page, she's sort of an underwritten character, you know, like there's not an, enough scenes. So like the moves she has to make emotionally to both fall for Macaulay, who's a tricky guy to fall for. And then just as she falls for him, learn this truth and have to like go through the struggle of like, you're a psycho. I'm terrified. Like there's not a lot of space in the movie, but she gives it you know, non-verbally, like with her expression, with how she acts it, so much lived emotion, it's almost more unsettling than if she was like a thinner performance or a like more like ignored subplot. Like how kind of like she steps to meet De Niro face to face, it almost makes it more unsettling because you're like, oh, you're a real person. And like the only way I buy you following him is like truly by being terrified. And that's how you play it. And there's sort of this long stretch of the movie where she's almost like dead eyed and she sees her life as she knows it over. And we're like, we're meant to get a glimmer of she does kind of accept that she still wants to be with Neil. There's like a squeeze of a hand or something. But we've just only seen her like truly look like a assault victim. I mean, she is assaulted. And also she just has this kind of like dissociated don't touch me look that. I don't know, like I'm not saying I wish she was like a less strong character and it should have been just like, a you know, 
gum chewing gal that like he met and was just like, New Zealand sounds great. Like that's, I'm not pitching that. It's like nice that she's such an interesting specific character, but it almost makes it, the movie's meant to feel real and all these characters are meant to feel lived in. They're not like archetypes that you're just kind of like filling in the blanks. You're like, I seem like, you seem like a real person and it's then more upsetting how kind of thin the space is for their characterization. So it's, it is, it, I agree with you on this point that that's to me the stuff that I, I like love the texture of the relationships and I really like a lot of the individual scenes, but like the arcs as a whole, when you watch the movie with, with, Diane Venora and Amy Brenneman specifically, I, really Amy Brenneman more than me. I kind of like it, the place they get to with what he does for Natalie Port for the daughter character and kind of like their that that she sort of holds her own a little bit better and sort of like stands up to him and he leaves and they like she's almost more like him than Amy Brenneman is. Like Amy Brenneman feels like a, a sweet graphic designer that um, shouldn't have talked to a guy at you know the bar next to a bookstore and um, she shouldn't have been uh so interested in what he does and what he reads as the line is um but yeah that's that's always been the thing that stood out of like there's there's not enough space for what you're trying to accomplish here and it, it leaves me like unsettled and not in the way i think it it means to and you know i think if he'd had more space he wouldn't have orchestrated that and everything else feels so well choreographed and like truly all these pieces i do think mostly work and I like the scrappy, scraggly scrawl of an Altman-esque, you know, like I don't need perfect resolutions for everybody, but like it's, yeah, Edie is a tough one. Edie's, Edie's really tough for me. So I'm not that mad. Okay, good. That's a good place to start. Uh, I, I, yeah. I will say that I think uh, the Diane Venora and Pacino stuff, um, uh, you know, it builds to them at the hospital at the end. I think, I think that's a nice moment there at the end for them. Like it, yeah. it builds to that. So like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that. And I do like the resolution of the Ashley Judd and Val Kilmer subplot with her standing yep. out on the balcony. That's, that's good. And Ashley Judd's very good there. Um, I am curious, um, have you seen, or are you aware of the TV movie LA takedown? I'm aware of it, but I've never watched it. I've always like been like, do I want to see a, you know, cheaper network TV, uh, unrealized version of heat? <laughs> I, I'm curious about it. Um, but I've never it's on YouTube, I think. I've never thrown it on. Yeah, last I checked, it was on YouTube. Uh, so for those that may not know, L.A. Takedown was a 1989 TV movie that Michael Mann wrote and directed. It was intended to be the pilot episode of a series, but uh, NBC didn't pick it up. Um, and Mann refers to it as kind of a very superficial dress rehearsal for Heat. It's like a 90-minute version of Heat uh, because Mann actually wrote the first draft of Heat back in the 70s. It sat around for a little bit, and then he turned it into this TV movie, L.A. Takedown. And he estimates that, uh, you know, it's it's 40 percent of the Heat screenplay. And if you haven't seen it, like, but are at all familiar with Heat, it's it's completely fascinating. Um, hmm. uh, I do recommend checking it out. It's a bizarre and strange experience to watch it because Vincent Hanna is there and Neil McCauley is there. He has a different name in L.A. Takedown, but it's the same character. Wayne Grow is there. Edie is there. Justine is there. All also with a different name. Wow. Um, a lot of the dialogue is the same. The major plot points are all there. The the coffee shop scene is there. It's like watching two imposters perform this wow. coffee shop scene. Very strange. But it is kind of a lean and mean version of Heat. And I'm not going to say anything outrageous like, you know, I prefer L.A. Takedown or anything. <laughs> sure. Um, Heat is definitely better than L.A. Takedown. Uh, but one plot thread that is not in L.A. Takedown is the Natalie Portman stepdaughter subplot. And I, I will say that I, I definitely didn't miss it. Um, like you were saying, to man's credit, there's almost nothing in Heat that could 
you could just lift out. Uh, it's structured in a way that either everything connects or pays off mm-hmm. because of some hinge information in another scene. Um, so you couldn't just cut Natalie Portman out of heat because it points to the scene at the end we were just talking about with Pacino and Venora at the hospital. Um, but on a script level, is there anything that you feel is more disposable? Like if you got rid of it and found proper ways to streamline things that, that you wouldn't necessarily miss if it, if it left? That's a good question. I mean, like, I do think there are things that like, you know, don't pay off. And would it be a more satisfying movie if it was a little, a little leaner and didn't have some of this kind of, you could argue ephemera. Um, But I think part of what I love about Heat and why I think it holds up and why I like the ambition of it is so exciting to me is like, sure, some things are not essential to the like arc and climax of the movie and these two main characters. Some things are kind of like details that don't move the main character story along in any way. And like time is spent building up backstories and, and, lived details of characters that are like, this isn't that important. Like, could this scene, could we have had a longer version of a scene with our heroes? Could we have like had a movie that came in at two hours and 10 minutes? But to me, that would have sacrificed so much of what I love on rewatching and don't, and feel you don't see as much in modern, really like studio controlled movie making. And, and this idea of like the notes process now, whether it's for TV or whether it's for anything is like, a million of these scenes, you would have had somebody being like, why do we need to have this? And what is this? And why does Tom Noonan like have to have a house that is up in the hilltop in Echo Park? And why is he in a wheelchair? And what does this have to do with biodigital jazz or whatever? Like all these things that like, you know, you could get him having the the blueprints quicker. You could like have, you know, all these things could be cut. But what would that movie be? Would that movie be L.A. Takedown? Would it be kind of this like what is the the like everything is keeping our a viewer on the hook to the next scene because it's going from A to B and intercutting with C to D or whatever? Like I this is a weird comparison and I, I don't like the movie nearly as much, but I was really um, surprised how much I loved Babylon recently. And I think Babylon is filled with lots of things that are don't work or are dumb or are extra or feel like time spent on things that I can't imagine made sense to spend time on. But I'm so glad that like, if you're going to spend movie productions are going to be a thing and they're going to keep trusting occasionally people to just like get out of the way and let me spend money and like make art that is specific. I want to keep encouraging that. And like, I can imagine coming back to the 60% of Babylon I enjoyed 10 years from now, more than I can imagine coming back to the like, I don't know, 100, 95% of like some slightly leaner, more toned and like safer movie that I've enjoyed from the last few years. And I just kind of like, like that somebody's getting to do that. I'm not getting to do it in TV. Like not a lot of people are getting to do it in features. Like it's really hard to just have that ambition. So I, all this is a long way of saying like, could I be like Topher Grace on set making my own Hobbit fan edit? of heat where I like take a razor blade to, you know, the MP4 file and, and drop a tight 90 minute remastered version. I'm, I'm sure I could. And I know the stories of the movie that I love, but I'm also like, I would almost miss everyone. Like I, the Natalie Portman story could go, but the, the texture of her not being able to find her hair clips and kind of having like a freak out over her dad, a character we never even meet. But like that scene is, 
I feel like that scene's amazing, even though it doesn't serve the larger picture. It's kind of like paints the chaotic situation he's inserted himself into, like Diane waking up and having a joint or whatever it is. And like, it just sort of like, it paints such a vivid picture of like, this isn't just like, I've got a nice wife in the suburbs, but she's mad. It's like so specific. You're living in this like brutalist, weird house and stepdaughter with like, you know, abandonment issues and mental illness and the mother's only half there and parties a little too much and is dating a homicide detective, you know, like robbery homicide. Like this is so specific and I would rather more than less. I don't want to take anything away. I like each moment. I, you know, even the Dennis Haysbert stuff that kind of comes in a little too late and a little too thin and a little like convenient and doesn't quite work in like elegant movie making ways, but like paints such a vivid picture beyond the three minutes of screen time where you're just kind of like, oh, this whole system, the system to be an ex, like what it is to be an ex-con and try to go legit and the the way the cards are stacked against you, like, and, and, and weigh you down into this, like, I'm a criminal or I'm nothing. Like to me, it just like, even that just one scene is like tells such a story that I like have have like a physical connection to and and think is fascinating, you know, and would, would be we, the movie is not about prison. The movie's not about what, you know, like bail reform should be or whatever. It's a different type of movie, but it is like, what is it? How do these criminals find themselves in this situation? Why don't they go legit? It kind of serves that narrative of like there's one of two ways this can go in their minds. So, yeah, I love it. Yeah, I'm kind of of two minds about it because I I love ambitious movies. I don't have a problem with long movies at all. I, I do tend to think that shorter is gener- generally the way to go. Don't be so merciless yeah. that you sacrifice story and rhythm and tempo. Mm-hmm. But if you can find ways to make it shorter, by all means. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, one of my favorite movies is Reds, the Warren Beatty movie. Have you seen that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it is both too long and demands to be you know long. Yeah. Uh, there are scenes in that movie that just go on and on, but right after them, comes the next great moment or the next beautiful moment. Yep. So the scenes kind of accumulate in power as I make it from high point to high point, even if I really do kind of feel the length of the journey. Uh, for me, with Heat, the, the movie never feels longer than the section between the heist and Pacino leaving the hospital to, to go to the hotel at the end. For me, there are just fewer high points in that section. Yeah. Um, and so that's where it begins to feel like a, a three-hour epic. Um, I do think there's maybe one whole scene in Heat that could be lifted out, and I'm going to run it past you, because I don't think if you lifted it out, it would compromise too much. Uh, I think the movie definitely survives without it. Uh, but it's the scene with Wangro in the hotel room with the prostitute. Uh, whenever I watch the movie, I always wonder if there's a way to minimize Wangro so that when he appears with William Fickner, it's more of like a surprise, more of a reveal. Like, oh no, that guy from the beginning... Um, like the scene with him at the bar is fine, you know, that comes shortly after uh, the prostitute scene. Uh, how do you feel about that hotel room scene I mentioned and I guess about the handling of Wayne Grow in general? I mean, I've I've always I, I've I've always bumped against that hotel room scene and that it. You know, it, it obviously establishes him as a threat that's very different than. Um, he's a different type of criminal or violent man than the rest of our crew, you know, like his relationship to violence is, is not as like workmanlike or sort of like required by the job or self-preservation. It's, it's like he's a sadist in a way that they aren't. And so it's like effective for the story to be like, almost say like, Oh yeah, these guys are criminals, but they're almost like good criminals. Like Wayne grow. That's a bad guy. Like you, you kind of like, like the shading, but I 
have always felt like there were other ways to get that. And I think you almost get it from him itching to pull the trigger on the guard with, you know, goo dripping out of his ears. Like at the end of that scene, you're like, this guy is an idiot and irresponsible and was like itching to kill someone and, and, and high on it. So like the idea that somehow, um, I, I know it works with the story that like there that, you know, Pacino's on to Wayne grow because of the, I I've always found that like, you know, I don't like this idea that he's just brutally murdering, you know, prostitutes as like, yeah, he's, other he's also guy. a serial killer. Yeah. Like that. He's also a serial killer feels like, what we maybe know about serial killers. I'm like, I don't think they're, they're not like odd jobbers. I don't think maybe they are. And maybe there's examples, but these, you know, people like dominated by like violent sexual impulses, like, you know, maybe don't have the time for gig work and keeping in touch with old pals. uh, And it's not quite like merged the way it is. And, you know, it's like, it's a brutal scene when Pacino has to like hug the, mother of that victim and the, you know, it's, it's, it's such an epic scene where you kind of are like feeling the full power of like, this is what like robbery homicide does or whatever. It's kind of like they come in with the takeover scenes and there's like a million flashing lights and victims, mother and other cop. Like it is kind of like epic. And it's like, this is what LA is or something. But I, I do kind of wish that like Wayne Gro's sliminess was enough, you know, like that they made the mistake letting him in because they were too in a rush to do this job or whatever, that they didn't get it done at the the diner getting rid of him and that, you know, they had the bad luck of the patrol car going by, like, and that he's just kind of the self-preservation, like, self-preservation, you know, showing up with William Fitt. Like, that might have been enough. I don't know. Like, I think there's ways to untangle the movie where you don't need Pacino on Wayne Grow quite the same way because he's a serial killer. It just feels like you still hate Wayne Grow. You still, like are so mad at him when he shows up at Fickner's office and is like, I got some moves I could make. Like, he's still like, you're like, God, I wish they'd killed him. You know, like that's the fun of the movie is when you're on the side of like, God, why couldn't they just kill the guy? You know, like you are rooting for it. And maybe it wouldn't work as well if you hadn't seen him be a true like, but they don't know he's a serial killer. You know, you're rooting for them to kill him because he he screwed the job up. He messed their competency up, you know, and he's doesn't take he doesn't take the work as seriously and deserves to be punished for it, which is sort of the code of Michael Mann movies or whatever. If you don't follow the rules, then you don't deserve to exist in this world. So um, but again, it's also he's the actors. He's so good in it. You're like, do you want to lose any Wayne Grow? You know, like I the Wayne Grow is it's another one where I and even the lines of like. No, you're a cowboy. That was like the, you know, you just gave me the, you know, F of my young life or whatever. Like such this weird. I think it's so icky that, you know, because you don't actually really see him be that violent with her. You know what happens. But like, it's so specific and icky. It's as a writer, I'm just like, that's a great scene. I I like seeing, (laughs) you know, it's well acted and shot. I don't know. So I'm sort of in agreement. But you hear me keep hedging where I'm like, yep, you're right from a storytelling perspective and I'm, I'm with you and even from like what it shows, but I don't want to lose any way and grow. I love it. <laughs> sure. Uh, so I mentioned earlier that Heat wasn't nominated for any Oscars. I think most people looking back would probably nominate it for a whole slew of them. Uh, but if you could nominate only one performance from Heat for an Oscar, who would you go with? Wow. That's a really, I oof, won. Okay. My, my first instinct is Pacino. Because I, even though this was like around the edge of, you know, when he became a little bit of self-parody or the version of like, 
you know, Pacino that gets slightly like maybe taken less seriously as like uh, the actor of the caliber he used to be. His cadence and rhythms are so compelling in this movie where it's like sonically, it's like one of the more interesting like performances. It like sticks in my head in a way that's like, you know, I think voice is so much of a great performance. And there's like a reason I think Daniel Day-Lewis says, you know, Plainview is like one of the great performances of our time. There's like locking into like a way of speaking and a, and a, and a rhythm of uh, with paired with great dialogue. That's like for me, that's what that's what like movies are. And so I want to say Pacino, but because of it was when he's like kind of so big and he's so over the top and it's almost like, you know, I'm I, I might say Val Kilmer. Oh, wow. Okay. I'm, I'm, I think like if I had to put it up for one and think of the one it could get, I think Val Kilmer as supporting, like coming out of Batman, you know, forever, whichever it was, and just like clearly working through something and just kind of being in this like, you know, to me, he feels fully transformed in this movie and has this kind of like blown out shark-eyed energy that is like so heartbreaking and feels doesn't never feels like he's acting in a scene in a way that like I think De Niro's incredible and every and he makes incredible choices but I always feel like I can kind of see like the De Niro the actor coming coming at the scene at least in this movie and, and same with Pacino so yeah Val Kilmer I'm gonna say okay I uh, I, I want to say that until this most recent viewing I I didn't like Pacino in the movie I think it was on this viewing uh, that I really came to appreciate because I, I think I associated the two kind of unhinged moments he has in the movie where he's interrogating, um, you know, uh, people, uh, and I kind of conflated his whole performance around that. I was like, Oh, that's just Pacino grandstanding or chewing scenery or whatever. Uh, but this time out, I found it to be a really measured, controlled, deliberate performance. Uh, and when he does kind of have his outburst, it's coming from a real emotional place in the story. Um, so just I just wanted to say that, like, I have not been giving Pacino his full credit for this Hell performance. Yeah. Um, the two performances I liked a lot on this recent viewing, in addition to Pacino's, were actually Tom Sizemore and John Voight. I think if you could nominate an actor for one look, I'd nominate Tom Sizemore for that stare he gives to the guy who looks up when De Niro's banging Wango's head on the table at the diner at the beginning. Uh, just, yeah. He just kind of like he just kind of leans to the, the big side. cowboy. Yeah, the yeah. lean. Yeah, he's he like just that. That's all. Like that's the performance. He's great. Um, and then I already mentioned it, but the scene when Sizemore decides to stick around for one last score. That's a great scene for him, and I really love the way he plays that. It's like a, almost a wounded puppy dog, almost, uh, which is a weird energy to come from Sizemore. Hold on, this is a visual thing. I'm going to be right back. We can okay. talk about. Hold on, one second. I got to show you t-shirt that I wear with pride pretty often. For me, the action is the juice. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Love that line so much. Love the delivery. It's a great wild heat t-shirt that I have. Um, but yeah, it's the heartbreak. You know exactly where Tom Sizemore's character is going when he says that, you know, like this is a guy who could walk away and is not. Yeah, I, I, I think those are both. Yeah, I mean, God, Sizemore, the energy he brings to that. He just, he seems like a intense personality. I, I do love the capper to that scene as well. F, you know, Sizemore is clearly wrestling with the decision. He ultimately, you know, the action is the juice for him. Uh, and then they're like, Trejo. And he's like, yeah, sure. Whatever. And they yeah. all kind of laugh. Ah, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> oh, um, so good. Uh, I do want to say some more good things about the movie before we kind of drill into our worst parts. Um, what I do like about heat, I think is great. The more procedural 
cat and mouse aspects I'm really into. I love all the physical set pieces in the movie, uh, even the ones that aren't necessarily like action oriented, like when Pacino and his team are in the surveillance van during one of mm-hmm. De Niro's robberies and it's cutting back and forth between Pacino and the infrared image of De Niro on the monitor. I think that's great. Um, I mentioned earlier that I prefer Thief and Manhunter overall, but but one area where I think Heat triumphs greatly over those two movies is in the climax. I think the climaxes of those two movies are maybe the clumsiest things about them, but mm-hmm. but somewhere in the interim years, uh, Michael Mann just really found his footing when it came to directing action, he, and he's so commanding here, and Heat has one of the great climactic set pieces of the 90s, I think, Um you know, in his previous movies, he kind of had a tendency to slather music all over the action during the mm-hmm. climax. It's pretty successful in something like Last of the Mohicans. I think definitely less successful in Thief and Manhunter. Uh, but he was so wise to mostly let this one play out with just the environmental ambiance of the airport. That's half of why the sequence is so effective, I think. And he's just really good at capturing the it's that it's that proficient shark man thing, the, the hyper acute faculties and awarenesses of his characters in general, just across the board. Uh, but this sequence is maybe the most uh, powerful example of that in his career. Um, is there anything else you want to say about heat before we kind of drill into uh, the worst parts of it? I mean, I could, I could, I could talk all day about my favorite moments and it will probably add up to being um, almost all of them, <laughs> but I love this crew is good. Uh, I love when they, you know, the, the LAPD find themselves, tricked into going out to Long Beach to the docks and are trying to figure out what the meeting was about and what they're looking to rob and realize they're the ones being surveilled. And, you know, you see De Niro with a long lens snapping pics and getting all the info and De Niro knowing exactly what's going on in a real like superhero way. Like he he makes the jump so fast, like, you know what I'm looking at us or whatever is just it's like one of those. It's almost like for me when the movie is at it's like purest as a like I'm rooting for both sides here, but rooting for the criminals to get away with it more than I'm rooting for them to get caught. But like, you know, the 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 morality of the movie comes home to roost later in a way that can be difficult or can be, you know, like kind of lived in in a like kind of way. But like that movie where you're sort of like crew versus crew, they were smart enough to walk away from, you know, the van surveillance because of the drop and um but now they're they're turning the tables and surveilling the LAPD like that is the promise of the premise of the movie, you know, when it's kind of at it's like, ooh, gotcha. Now they got now they know these guys and it's it's all fun. You know, they're taking pictures of each other and like learning about each other. And I don't have to think about how um, I don't have to think about how they're actually, you know, sociopaths and uh, you know terrible spouses. I can just think about how they're how they're smart and um, they're really good at their job. So. Yeah, I got to call out this crew is good. Um, also, it's just one of become one of my favorite memes um, on the Internet. People using that. I, there was one recently that was like when the Domino's pizza tracker says my pizza will be arriving earlier than anticipated. Just that image of but, you know, this crew is good. <laughs> the uh, this crew is good scene actually is in L.A. Takedown as well. It mm. is uh, significantly less uh, cool in that movie. Um, <laughs> but yet another reason to kind of maybe check it out just for as a point of comparison. Uh, so you kind of already teed it up a little bit, yeah. your your worst part of Heat. Um, it's it's the way E.D. kind of factors into the climax. Um, do you want to speak more on that? Yeah, and it, it's so I for me, I, I love the final E.D. moments, you know, like I 
I, I, find, I find it really effective of when De Niro has killed Wayne Grow, pulled the fire alarm, made his way out of the hotel by the airport. They have like their one last moment. I forget the order it happens, but she basically sees De Niro walking away like he's basically promised and told her a little too late, but he's, she sort of understands what's happening and she sees Pacino going after him. It's this sort of like confusion and horror at what's going on, but there is like the, the tinge of like, oh no, you know, like I've lost him and they're onto him. And, and obviously like he shouldn't have done this. Like that moment works. I, I find the stretch where she tries to, basically like flips out and thinks he's a psychopath when she figures out what's going on. And is that you on the news? And what did you do? And there's people dead, like has learned that he's a murderer, not just a criminal, but like a murderer. And he sort of like physically bullies her into like, come on, we got to go. And there's just like, they have like a scene in the car where she's so dead eyed in a way that feels real, but it almost feels too real. And it feels like we're kind of expected to still be rooting for this getaway. He hasn't made the decision yet to go back for Wayne Grow. You know, that call from John Voight's character of like, thought you'd want to know, which is a setup by the LAPD, like, you know, put it out to our, you know, scumbag informants that Wayne Grow's at this hotel. Like that call from Voight is when he makes the decision that does cost him things. So like because of that timing, and I know movies are not this simple, but you're like, he was good until then. Technically, you know, like in terms of like, is is our here is one of our heroes going to get away in a way we've kind of been rooting for him to for 100 minutes. But like, there's something so icky and weird of like, you're oh, that this is the choice between, you know, I guess getting justice for, you know, your your crew and the betrayal, but also like, oh, you're going to get killed and getting to get away rich with a kidnap victim. It's 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 a weird final choice for the movie. And, and Amy Brenneman plays it so. And I sort of alluded to this earlier, so real and so kind of haunted by what she's learned, what she's what her life is becoming. You know, like I'm there's no going back. This guy, I don't know what she's going on in terms of her head legally, but I've sort of like emotionally given myself to this person that like can never be free, can never, you know, has killed people. We're going to where are we going? Um, It like throws off that timing of the the ending for me, you know, in a way where I'm like, I've turned on Macaulay too soon. And I, as a viewer, and it's more every time I rewatch it, I'm like, I'm certainly not rooting rooting for him to kill Wayne Grow because, you know, like it's the wrong choice in terms of him getting caught. But I'm also like, I'm not rooting for you to do either. You know, I, I I'm not like, yay, I want Macaulay to get justice because he has his code. Nor am I like, yay, I want Macaulay to get away free with the money because, like, in both scenarios, I'm like, you've lost me because of how quickly this turn happened. So I, I I just feel like, I don't know, it's like there's a reality to it of like, I believe that a woman could be bullied into this and would be scared and and maybe you could leave open some room for like, she's going to, you know, have a uh, Stockholm syndrome. Like, yeah, I, I believe that there's like a, maybe a future for them, just like a shred or something. But like, there's not a, like at this point, there's not a lot of movie left. It's sort of happening fast as we race to the conclusion of, are you going to go to the airport? Are you, are you clean? Are you not clean? And I, I, I just, I don't mind him getting killed. And, I, and I, I wish it was like a pure, like he chose Wayne Grow and, and killing someone who didn't live by a code. And if that meant he gets killed, that's what it is, is to me, like almost like you could like walk away 
being like, that's sad, but that's what happens. But something about the like, you met a girl three weeks ago and have kind of like love bombed her and cornered her into like, you know, your terrible future and then are dragging her to the airport to run away forever is, you know, I think it's meant to tell the story of like, probably because his emotions softened with her or he's become more vulnerable. He's, he's, he's willing to violate his code with Wayne grow because it's kind of like, he's thinking with his heart, not his brain for a second, but like, he doesn't feel that vulnerable. You know, like he, he, he like the the way we see him kind of like roughhouse her and like threaten her sort of into like come with me is does not quite feel like De, De Niro's changed enough or or opened himself up to some sort of like he's just kind of like I want this I want someone to go with me and it's like a little sad being alone and I found you and you're coming with me and there's there's like I don't know it seems to violate codes of like loyalty or caring or other, I don't know. It just makes him emotionally colder than I would expect to feel at that point in the movie. Right. It's, it's really interesting to note uh, that in LA takedown, Edie doesn't go with him. Uh, mm. He gives her that same speech and she walks away and he's like, I guess that's that. Um, and so it makes him going yeah. after Wangro even more of a self-destructive act. And I actually think from a character and story standpoint, that's maybe the one thing that LA takedown does better than mm. it makes, it makes Neil's downfall even more appropriately tragic to me. Uh, would you have, I, I'm putting you on the spot here, but would you have rather it gone in a direction like that? Or would you have tweaked it in some other way? Do you think I, that to me, that's like really compelling this idea of like, he was wrong to think that he could kind of like manage her into this life with him, you know, like ultimately, like if you're someone who's like not allowed anyone to like for you to love someone, for someone to love you, for you to compromise your life in any way to like actually have a partnership, you don't know how to navigate that or win that in three weeks or whatever the time length of the movie is like the almost the it is not what he's good at. He's good at robbing banks and keeping to a code. He's not good at like understanding what it is to be in a partnership or whatever. So there is there's almost like a you know, the hubris of him thinking he can meet Edie and get away with her on top of having the money and living with like, you know, 30 seconds, be able to walk away is wrong. It's like the hubris that I I would be more interested in him finding is not a reality or being punished for. And it sounds like the LA takedown version is a little more cleanly. Like, why do you think you could get this? No. And so then he's self-destructive or however he's making the decision to like, well, now that I have nothing to my plans falling apart or I have nothing to like, I've gotten a taste of this, like whatever a life with love. I don't care anymore that I can't because maybe I, I don't deserve to have it. Like Macaulay is not someone that ever maybe could have it. I know that's like the hope of the movie, but like the way De Niro plays it, you're not like, wow, this softy is actually like, <laughs> you know, he's like <laughs> giving her the pushes her hair back and just goes in for a firm kiss and is like, you're my girlfriend now. Here's a glass of water. <laughs> um, you know, it's not like he's, you're like, Oh wow. What a, what a puppy dog inside. It's a shame he found this life. Um, though I will say the, 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 the heat Two sequel lives in the prequel space a bit and you goes a long way. His, his story in the prequel section of the book is sort of about setting up his, not just his code to walk away, but his like hardness about relationships in a way that you're like, okay, so that part was broken in you because of a tragedy or whatever. But I think the movie as it stands, I, I like the LA takedown version of where like, you don't get Edie. Why do you think you could have it all? You know, and and that she has some agency in walking away. It's it's it it, it 
hurts her character that she's kind of given no choice at almost any point in the movie. You know, like Macaulay's in the driver's seat literally or figuratively the whole time. And and it's 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 sad to see the ending of her character is just like as a frightened passenger, you know, the stronger choice is to give Edie, a, you know, if you're going to ask me to be your other half or whatever, I get a say and no, you know, is 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 a cooler turn for the Macaulay character rather than someone who continues to get what he wants with people that he's smarter than. Yeah. The movie kind of punishes her for making that. Like she's a victim of the circumstances already. And then it, then it kind of crushes her additionally to then be left behind. Yeah. Um, For me, uh, we've kind of already spoken a little bit about it. Um, I've always found the handling of the Dennis Haysbert character to be pretty clumsy because I think it's both, transparent in its construction and also maybe contrived in its execution. Mm-hmm. So throughout the movie, we spend a little bit of time with Dennis Haysbert's character and his partner played by Kim Staunton. Uh, Haysbert's fresh out of prison and he's trying to acclimate to life on the outside and it's not going well. Like you said, he's working a job at a diner that he hates with a boss played by Bud Court, who's awful. Um, and we watch these scenes and they feel a little disconnected to the rest of the story. We don't know how he fits in exactly, but you, you have the sense that all will be revealed in due time. And when that time comes, here's how it unfolds. Uh, De Niro and his crew lose their wheelman on the day of their big heist. De Niro and his crew just happen to be eating at the same diner in which Haysbert is a short order cook. De Niro just happens to know Haysbert from the past and sees him working in the kitchen. And just like that, they have themselves a new wheelman. Um, now, from the first time I watched Heat and on every subsequent viewing, I get to this part of the movie and I always think to myself, well, that's awfully convenient. Uh, and I feel like no amount of time we spend with the Haysbert character prior to this moment changes that fact. They just know a guy that works there who also has the same skill set they need for the heist. Um, and I feel like Michael Mann even maybe recognized that because I feel like Haysbert's earlier scenes are almost reverse engineered so that mm-hmm. his character doesn't feel like a plot contrivance. But then the movie just pr- proceeds to treat him as a plot contri- contrivance. Um, and I keep going back to it, but in L.A. Takedown, the same scenario happens. They lose their well man, but the movie just cuts and there's a character who we've never seen before sitting in the driver's seat. Mm. And the implication, I guess, is, you know, they found someone else. Of course, that's also not ideal, but I often wonder if the best solution wasn't just to have the team kind of scramble to find someone new, like they're going through their mental Rolodexes of criminal associates. And then they remember Haysbert's character um, Because in its current form, I think it's kind of the one and only way in which the movie chooses the lazy way out. Like, I have Mm -hmm. problems with heat, obviously, but I would never accuse it of being lazy, except for maybe this this one instance. And I think it's doubly unfortunate because, honestly, next to the Pacino-De Niro relationship, I think there's a lot of good stuff there with Haysbert and Staunton. They they have maybe the most affecting relationship on screen. Mm -hmm. Um, They're doing good work there. Um, So that's enough out of me. How do you feel about all of that, Max? Do you think I'm off base at all with the Haysbert character? I don't think you're off base. I mean, I because I found the stuff with him and Staunton so good. And even though they only have like three or four scenes, I feel like they almost have the most tender relationship in the whole movie. And this idea of her having been patient with him while he was inside and kind of like knowing how hard this new rebuilding life is. And she believes in him and he kind of is like wants to be something for her that he isn't yet is really effectively performed. And that moment where she sees that he's died on the news at the bar, maybe waiting for him or maybe just by herself. I don't, I don't remember which, but is 
so tragic and so affecting because it is almost like the healthiest relationship you've seen in the movie in its own weird way. So I, I'm attracted to a version where you don't have this kind of like clumsy, convenient storytelling of like, you recognize who that is over here? Remember him? Um, where it's maybe just some other guy that said, I, I, you know, this is another, like, if only there was more time. I, I also like love that stuff so much. I wish there was like, is there a chance meeting, you know, earlier in the film where they recognize each other from inside and it's kind of, you know, Haysbert's like, I'm working at a diner now and like, you know, keeping his distance and sort of like, I'm, you know, avoiding like Neil, you know, something where you kind of like understood that like Haysbert knew that Neil and that life was an option, but rejected it, but got sort of piled on so hard by like Bud Court and what that life is and, and what he can't be for, for Staunton that he then like, you know, if it was another run in or something, but you just kind of want to like not have Neil have to say, I actually knew him from, but you know, like it's so it's, it's wild exposition to happen in the scene where they're panicking. But I, I, I agree that like the way it unfolds feels like, yeah, leftover from a three arc episode thing on a TV show more than a, you know, something that quite fits in with a movie that's so like elegant and about like the causality of like decisions and mistakes and, and running into someone at a diner is not that LA's the biggest city in LA as the movie has like instructed us. It's also like the movie is so built on the kind of like the way this crew is able to kind of like disappear in this like complicated city with like overpasses and broken security cameras. And, you know, cops are all like the city feels so big, even the like, I'll find you on the freeway and a helicopter is helping you escort me to a diner. Like it's so large. So for them to be at the same diner is like, what? This isn't Fargo or whatever. This is LA. This is heat. So I'll give you that one. All right. That sound means it's time to step into the worst part podcast time machine. I'm setting the coordinates for my hometown of Charlotte, North Carolina, the date Friday, December 15th, 1995, which is when heat opened. Max, we're going to the Eastern Federal Cinema, movies at the lake to see Heat, but when we get to the box office, we're told that, unfortunately, Heat is sold out. So, now we each have to choose to see another title that's playing at the theater, and our options on that day are Father of the Bride Part 2, Sabrina, Jumanji, Toy Story, The American President, Money Train, Casino, GoldenEye, Ace Ventura When Nature Calls, it takes two or get shorty. So with those choices, what do you do? What do you do? Oof, wow. I think. And I'll just say to talk you through my decision making that like there's so many of these that I did see in the theater at the time or that I loved in the near future. Um, I did not not have the best Ace Ventura when nature calls experience. It was not quite as good as the first one, but I mean, Casino, um, GoldenEye, Get Shorty, Jumanji. Like, I think what I would want to see theatrically right now is GoldenEye. I loved GoldenEye. I loved the Pierce Brosnan James, but like that was uh, my entry into like, oh, I love James Bond. Um you know, I love the Daniel Craig movies, like for what they are. But I think before that, actually, Pierce Brosnan was my favorite Bond, not Connery, just because of when it like entered my life. I remember seeing that one in the theater, I think with my grandmother. Um, and I think it's still so funny and big. And I rewatched a couple years ago and I was like, God, there's so many 
I mean, hilarious performances in this and Robbie Coltrane and um, uh, Alan Cumming and like just there's, a you know, Famke Johnson. There's so many like amazing. I. Yeah, that's that's my choice. All right. You're going with Goldeneye. Yeah. Um, I saw six of those in the theater at the time. I've now seen all but It Takes Two. Uh, with Mary Kate and Ashley Olsen, I'm I'm not really feeling that. Um, I think Toy Story is probably the best of those, I would say, but I've also seen it a bunch, so I, I feel okay passing on it here. So I think I'm actually going to go with Casino, which is another three-hour De Niro movie that I have mixed feelings about. Um, but I've never seen it in a theater uh, or on film, so I'm going to go with Casino. It's a great choice. Great movie. Wow, I can't believe what was in the multiplexes right then. Incredible. All right, so there you have it, Max Silvestri. It was great to have you on the show. Thank you for indulging me and not getting mad about my stupid opinions about heat. Um, do you have anything coming up that you want everybody to be aware of? Um, I would just love, you know, to, for people to check out Past My Bedtime on Audible, written by me and Leah Beckman. Uh, amazing cast, David Harbour, Jenny Slate, Darcy Carden, Whoopi Goldberg, Zach Galifianakis, uh, a million other incredible people. Um, 200 characters, it's wild. But if you like expansive narratives of of heat-like intersection of um, life and tragedy, uh, but funny. Please, please check that out. And Killing It Season 2 will be out this summer on Peacock. Please check that out. And Human Resources Season 2, so on Netflix. All right, that's it for Season 1. Everyone out there can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We are Worst Part Pod. Our theme song was written by my brother, Jason Foster. On behalf of my co-host, Trip on Weeks, thank you for listening. We'll see you next season.